Dr. Stephen Ennis is a director of the Harry Ransom Center in Austin, Texas. His research interests are in 20th century poetry. He has written on Ted Hughes, Sylvia Plath, and Seamus Heaney. Major acquisitions during his tenure have included the archives of Ian McEwen, Michael Andaje, Arthur Miller, and Nobel Prize laureates Kazuo Ishiguro and Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Before coming to the Ransom Center, he held appointments at the Folger Shakespeare Library and at Emory University's Archive and Rare Books Library. Welcome, Stephen, to the Bibliophile again. Thank you. Delighted to be with you. Thanks for the invitation, Nigel. Now, you acquired McEwen for the Harry Ransom Center. You acquired Salman Rushdie for Emory. I'm interested in where Martin Amos, Christopher Hitchens, Clive James, and James Fenton all are. <laughs> well, um, you know, ultimately, each each archive of all the figures you name, um, all, all of them uh, will find institutional homes. All of them would be of strong research interest. And there are any number of research libraries that could serve those collections well and serve the legacy of those writers well over over time. You know, in terms of where they come to rest specifically, you know, there need to be several conditions in place for an acquisition to occur. And, And one of the key ones is simply the creative figure himself or herself Uh, needs to be prepared for that step. It needs to be the right time for them. And this can occur, you know, early in a career, um, or it can occur, you know, late in a career or even posthumously. So there's no one timeline on which these things, these decisions tend to be made. You know, the Ransom Center, along with other peer uh, research institutions engaged in similar work, we we are always, um, you know, looking for opportunities, to grow the collections in significant ways with materials that we know will be of strong research interest. Uh, but there is a, an element of, of waiting for the, the factors necessary for an acquisition to occur, for those factors all to come together. And a key one, as I say, is the readiness of the, of the individual himself or herself. But getting Amos together with McEwen would be sweet. Absolutely. Um, you know, there's a kind of creative um, DNA that runs through many of the collections. And while one may acquire an archive of an individual figure for the value that their own life's work has for subsequent research, um, inevitably there are relationships and, and connections and influences. And, you know, one finds um, an archive, you know, really traces many of those connections and, and networks. And one, one principle of collecting that, that we follow, and I'm sure others do as well, is really um, following those lines of connection, that creative DNA that uh, runs um, through some of these archives here. And so that is a very powerful uh, rationale for making subsequent ac- acquisitions, absolutely. So why don't you have Amos? <laughs> well, uh, you know, we uh, 
as I say, they, these things follow different timelines. And, um, you know, we are at any given moment doing um, many things. We're pursuing quite a few collections, not just literary archives, but, yes, of course. Um, you know, um, filmmakers and, um, you know, photography archives. And we're always actively engaged in building the collections, but but it, it simply hasn't been the moment for, for Martin Amos. Uh, you referenced a visit that you made to Salman Rushdie's place in a lecture or a talk that you gave about 10 years ago now. And incidentally, I watched it recently, and boy, it seems like very current. It, it, the, the conversation uh, that you had uh, that afternoon, again, it doesn't, it hasn't dated, I don't think. Mm, yeah. But but anyway, you you referenced Andrew Wiley talking about the value of emails, right? Wiley is also involved with Amos. So it's the same, it's the same people. Is is it? There are many people um, you know, who might be engaged in this this kind of work. Um, you know, the number of, of institutional buyers um for the some of the most coveted collections of the kind we're talking about, uh, that's a, a relatively finite list. Uh, but we know who who they all are. They're they're engaged in this this work as the Ransom Center is, and there tend to be a number of manuscript dealers who are quite active. And then increasingly, as you're suggesting, sometimes a literary agent may also uh, perform that that kind of um, role in helping to shepherd or steer a collection into an institutional home. Um, so yes, it's a somewhat finite and specialized activity. You know, Andrew Wiley, you know, was the agent representing Salman Rushdie at the time that Emory acquired that archive and uh, had quite a lengthy um, back and forth series of negotiations with him over that acquisition. That's right. If it's not too personal, how, how was that negotiation? Yeah, well, I've spoken about about this, and this may be the talk that you're alluding to. You know, the the literary agent customarily represents the author in the sale of his or her manuscript to a publisher, which is going to then be revenue generating for the publisher and for the author and for the agent. And, you know, that that same kind of economic framework is not in place uh, in our research library environment. Any archive that the Ransom Center purchases, we can guarantee we are going to make nothing, zero, in terms of revenue on that acquisition. And so there is a a sense in which um, the traditional role of the literary agent doesn't fit as comfortably the kind of economic circumstances that research libraries tend to work in. You know, Andrew Wiley has a reputation and he would say this of himself, I think, of being very aggressive and pushing for, you know, the maximum uh, return for his clients. He's quite proud of that as he, as he should be. But that can be a damaging thing when the economic situation is, is different, when it's in a, a higher education context where it's not a sale of a manuscript that's based on future earnings or revenue and when when money then when the sale price becomes the sole determining 
uh, factor in, in where an archive goes, that, that can be destructive. And I've, I've said as much and on multiple occasions and, um, you know, I'd far rather work uh, personally, would far rather work personally with uh, someone uh, who understands the research environment that our research institutions operate within and, and someone who shares that value and is committed to the, the added value we can provide and service to an archive. And Wiley doesn't? As I say, I think uh, it's a commercial model that, that Wiley is engaged in, pursuing um, you know, maximum financial return for um, his client without perhaps the same degree of regard for the kinds of, of uh, values and institutional imperatives that I'm talking about. Yeah, the way you put it in that talk was the author became a corporation. Yeah, as I say, the profit profit motive, when that has too heavy a hand in the outcome of a negotiation, it, it can distract from the larger kind of goal of promoting research access and use of a collection in an appropriate research library setting. Um, you know, we, as I say, we make nothing on any of these acquisitions. In fact, when we acquire a collection, we're actually taking on an enormous financial obligation. Um, and I'm not talking just about the upfront cost of cataloging and housing the collection or the digital reformatting of, you know, audio and, and moving image type materials. I'm also talking about, you know, years of, you know, research support. And in the case of the Ransom Center, very robust uh, fellowship programs that, um, provide direct funding for scholars traveling around the world to work in these collections. So we, we choose who, who we think is worthy of, of that kind of institutional investment. And from my point of view, um, that contributed value of the institution should be appreciated as part of a negotiation, should be recognized within a, a negotiation as having value. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not merely the sale price that should determine the placement of an archive. And I think someone like Amos would understand that. I guess it depends how much money the author has, if they're starving or if they're, you know. Yeah. And on, on that topic, you know, we do uh, acquire materials by gift, of course. Uh, we're grateful for gifts when they, when, when they come to us. We do also pay. And, you know, there is a, a real sense that uh, for many creative people, you know, the archive, if they've been relatively or entirely self-employed for their working life, they may not have the kind of retirement funds established by an employer. They may not, you know, be in the same financial position that someone taking a more conventional career path might, might have available to them. So the sale of an archive uh, can provide very meaningful uh, direct support, patronage, if you will, for their creative work. And, you know, over my years in this profession, I've known writers to pay children's school fees and, you know, cover all kinds of essential costs. And, um, you know, I recall one poet who I won't identify by name, but he, uh, upon the sale of his archive, he promptly 
quit, <laughs> quit his job. <laughs> and over the subs, you know, over the didn't fall, quit writing though, didn't hopefully. Well, no, he kept writing, and yeah, over the next ten, 10 years, um, you know, produced um, a body of work that's quite significant. And I have to ask whether that body of work would have been produced had he still had his day job um, working in this instance as an arts administrator. Well, speaking of the topic of profit, in your discussions with uh, uh, Rushdie and your uh, subsequent reflection on that in this talk, you <clears throat> you talk about the, the awareness of value and the fact that that has ensured the survival of so many paper-based archives because there's an incentive for the trade to, to preserve. But with emails, perhaps there's some uncertainty. Yeah, yeah. I, I do think the fundamentals are, are very different when we're talking about electronic communications. I should quickly say, though, that you know, we're agnostic about what form uh, an archive takes. And we routinely now, every archive that we acquire is a hybrid archive. There's lots of paper, as, as one typically finds. Um, but then increasingly, there, there are electronic files as well. Or in the case of Ian McEwen that you mentioned a moment ago, we or JM Codesea, you know, we, we actually capture from their computers, you know, large quantities of, of their digital communications. So those, those communications, you know, that is the default on how we communicate with one another now. And what used to be in a letter form is increasingly um, in an email form or entirely in an email form, I should say. And um, in the same way that letters in the past were you know, of great biographical and um, historical importance, uh, email still carries that that value if we can capture it and retain it. What's different is um, it's infinitely uh, replicable. It can be, you know, there there is not, well, some would quibble with this, but there's not a, um, a, a unique object in the same way there was with a letter, for example. An email can be printed out numerous times. And so that that element of exclusiveness or uniqueness uh, is diminished with regard to electronic communications, though they retain enormous research value. And the challenge for the profession, of course, for all of us is, is how to systematically capture and preserve what we know is of, of enduring research value. And we're we're collectively, the profession is collectively, you know, working on those challenges. Yeah, I love the point that you make about the fact that you do capture uh, more with the emails typically because you get both sides. Yeah. The correspondence, uh, even though there may be quite a bit of, uh, as McEwen uh, as put it, see you at eight o'clocks. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so the, because the, the mechanisms for capturing email communications are automated. It's within your, you know, your system, the systems that you use. There is no determination on the part of the author. I will retain this letter because it is significant. That kind of self-consciousness never occurs. Uh, it's simply present or it's not present. It's either, you know, been, been saved on a 
hard drive or uh, on a server or or not. So there's you know a sense in which it's a very comprehensive and very or potentially a very comprehensive and, and complete collection uh, of both sides of the communication. But what we haven't really established is you know the market value. Going back to the earlier questions you were asking, uh, the market value of this very ephemeral electronic communication. And that was part of the point I was trying to make with regard to the Rushdie acquisition. Andrew Wiley, of course, spoke about the enormous um, research value that the email communications um, would have, and he's absolutely right about that. But he equated that research value with monetary value. And there, I don't think that's as clear um, a line of argument. And I don't think we have sufficient number of you know, comparables or, or known sale prices of entirely digital archives to form a kind of baseline market that we can uh, establish value for other collections. But we know they're important, so <laughs> we need to save them. Yeah, yeah, we do. And as I say, we're engaged in that, like like other research libraries, like the whole community of research institutions, we're all engaged in that work of how to how to both capture and preserve this very ephemeral resource over time and how to make it accessible. You know, in the case of some of the digital content that, that we have within the archives here, uh, the great irony is that because the, the, this is copyrighted material, we, we can't freely um, make it available online, even though it's already in a digital form and, and theoretically could be shared you know, online with, with readers everywhere without the burden uh, of having to travel all the way to Austin, Texas to, to sit down in front of a computer in our reading room and, and read, um, in this case, Ian McEwen's uh, email communications. So there's a sense in which you know, we've returned to a kind of medieval monastic kind of uh, world where we're chaining the electronic communication to a, a reading room desk to be consulted on site. And, you know, there have to be better ways and we, we will continue, the profession will continue to explore better ways of capturing, preserving and making available uh, what you and I both know is, is of great research interest. Okay, my goal with this podcast uh, is to talk to the best practitioners in, in their various roles connected to the book. What I'm trying to do here, Stephen, is, is to rescue you from oblivion. <laughs> uh, so one of the ways I'm going to try and do that is to get you to answer the question, uh, when you get up in the morning and head to work, what are you most excited about? Well, that's a, a very open-ended question. And, you know, there are many, there are many answers. You know, there are many forms of reward and gratification that one gets uh, from this kind of work. And, and those, one hopes, come daily. Um, and but they can be quite, quite varied. Certainly, you know, acquiring extraordinary research collections of some of the most creative figures now writing that has enormous reward. These are writers, those, the names you've been mentioning um, and some that I've acquired, these are figures whose work will be read um, long after we're all gone. And people will 
try and understand what it was like, you know, to live at this particular moment in time through the, these novels and, and poems and plays. And so certainly, you know, acquiring materials uh, is one of the most um, gratifying things because it's lasting, it's permanent. And there are very few, you know, forms of work, uh, careers where one can say that one's engaged in creating something that's permanent and lasting. And, um, uh, we certainly are here here at the Ransom Center. I will say um, there's also a very personal aspect of of what I'm trying to describe, and that is, you know, for the the writer himself or herself, when they have placed a collection here at the Ransom Center, and and they have this moment of recognition that an institution like the Ransom Center believes that that their work is lasting it's kind of like winning uh an extraordinary literary honor of of some kind that um this posthumous life not only you know might happen it will happen that for years to come generations to come this individual's work is going to be read and appreciated and people will be grappling to understand what they spent so much of their creative life laboring to produce so there's a very human element to it that's that's and, and the relationships that that one has with these creators is another element of the of the gratification and the thing that one most looks forward to i will say there are many other forms of of you know gratification and you know seeing on a daily basis the kinds of uses that these collections are being put to you know you know the there is a community of readers as well um not only creators but but readers and the readers gather around a place like the ransom center and sometimes they do it because of exhibitions that we've put on or programs that we've put on but day in and day out um there are people traveling um from all around the country and all around the world uh to come to our reading room and to sit down in front of a box of papers of Ian McEwen or Katsui Shiguru or whoever you care to name. And, and that's a very special community of people. And to see the, the kinds of uses that they are making of, of archives like these is a, a wonderful experience. You know what's so interesting about what you just said is that it really put me in mind of the same sort of pride and sense of uh, accomplishment that someone might feel if a great publishing firm like Faber, speaking of Ishiguro, picked them up and right. included them in their community. Yeah, that's right. Uh, publishers are, 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 of course, curating their list very carefully and you know, there's an element of curation, of course, that goes into the building of collections like the ones here at the Ransom Center. And that is, um, you know, inherently, you know, focused on on value, what has, has value in, in good writing and uh, what will be enduring and what will be of research interest. And so one, one tries to make good decisions and sometimes does, uh, but it's clearly a, a curated a curated collection. Okay, so what is the least exciting thing about what you do? <laughs> well, um, you know, I work um, 
at a state institution. And um, there, there is a layer of administrative bureaucracy that can be oppressive. Let me, just, let me just leave it at that. And um, there's not always a lot of uh, uplift <laughs> um, working with um, a bureaucratic state university system of the size and scale of the University of Texas at Austin. So um, I rely on a number of my colleagues who are very good at that kind of thing, and I'm grateful to them. And what does that mean, that kind of thing? What does that mean? Um, you know, navigating internal workflows and processes for approvals or contract review and administrative tasks where there's not a lot of poetry <laughs> and um, where um, the task needs to be accomplished, but doesn't necessarily have the same kind of, it, it, it doesn't feed the individual in the same way. Okay. So you're talking about administration, and I guess at the top of that list would be cataloging, would it, in terms of importance? Well, no, I would put cataloging in a totally different realm. Uh, uh, Cataloging activities are, uh, I mean, we're all indebted to the work of of catalogers who really make these collections accessible, and um, that's very much a you know, a robust operation here within the Ransom Center. And we're, we're deeply committed to creating the organized systems of discovery that are essential for a research library to function. Um, I was, by administrative, I was referring to a lot of the institution's interactions with the state bureaucracy or the overall university processes. I'm a big, big advocate, big fan of our catalogers. No, I wasn't suggesting you weren't, but I mean, you're administrating the stuff that you get in the door by yeah. by putting it into a systematic organization that, that then allows it to be accessed, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. And then, of course, there's preservation, conservation. In terms of the administration, would you say that, for example representing underrepresented populations or dealing with diversifying your workforce, would that fall into administration? Sure. Um, You know, but it also falls into, um, you know, the curation that we've been speaking about as well. Um, You know, the Ransom Center has been in existence for almost 65 years now and uh, practices of collecting have shifted significantly um, over that 65-year period. And, you know, a lot of what one might view as valuable is partly an individual decision and partly socially constructed in time, in specific moments in time. So, you know, one might look at the Ransom Center's past collecting and see, you know, an underrepresentation of women, for example, in some periods of our history, which we're actively trying to address through acquisitions like the recent acquisition of the papers of Rachel Cusk, for example. But other, um, you know, diversifying the holdings racially and ethnically is high, high priority. And so while there is an administrative aspect to these goals with regard to the 
the composition of the staff and the composition of our program offerings and things of that kind, there's also an element in which it's, it's relevant for curation as well. Speaking of dealing with the state, and I, I don't mean just the university, I mean the state of Texas. One of the things that I really came away with from reading the book that your assistant Cheryl McGrath sent me called Collecting the Imagination, the first 50 years of the Harry Ransom Center, was the fact that Texas itself was so important. It was it was almost like Texan nationalism, in, in a sense, that uh, there was a pride and that we had to have this center of knowledge here. And we, we didn't want our, our people to go abro- abroad for it. We wanted it here. What, to what extent does that currently play a role? Yeah, what you're describing um... It really goes back to the origins of the Ransom Center and some of the ambitions that Harry Ransom himself had in establishing um, this institution. And there was a perception, a real, true one, that the, the, the greatest rare book and manuscript collections in the country at that time were on the East Coast and some on the West Coast, but the middle of the country um, lacked the same intellectual resources. You know, Texas, um, you know, has has an enormous economy. It's um, a large state. The university system here has a very sizable endowment, the largest um, public endowment of any university in the country. And so there is, you know, historically and, and up to the present, you know, great, great potential. And there's great pride within the state at that potential. You know, it's gratifying to me when the form that it might take is the growth of research collections or investment in the state's flagship university. Uh, These are, I think, uh, very worthy investments. They're permanent investments in the intellectual capital of of the state, of the university. But we acquire them not for Texans alone. We acquire them for Uh, researchers wherever they may be. And the Gabriel Garcia Marquez archive, for example, which we were able to digitize with permission of the family, because that too is copyrighted material, because of their support, we were able to digitize that collection, 27,000 pages of it, and make it freely available online, and in essence, give it back to the people of Colombia, back to the people of Mexico and all of Latin America, and share it with people all around the world. So yes, we're situated in Texas, but our our mission is clearly beyond Texas. But there is um, certainly uh, an element of, of pride within the state in the University of Texas at Austin is the flagship university of the state system. And I hope pride too within the Ransom Center for the, the world-renowned collections that we house and the way we leverage those collections for the greatest possible impact. Yeah, one of the most interesting things that I thought Ransom uh, said in, in the speech that's, uh, that's reprinted is that 
we would get here, develop here, and keep here more creative minds. Oh, the yeah. first, the first, and he says this: the first essential in the collection and diffusion of knowledge. It the first is actually gathering and attracting smart people, people, not books. Well, I mean, you gotta have the books to get the people, but the people were the most important thing, it seemed. Well, I would express it a little bit differently. Um, you know, I think if one is building distinction in a higher education setting, you you typically do that through um, recruiting the very best faculty, the strongest and most promising students. And I would add building you know, extraordinary collections. And of those three things, the collection is the enduring one. And that's the permanent investment in the intellectual capital of a university. Faculty, while they may have lengthy and distinguished careers at one institution, they will not be here forever. Many are very itinerant, as we know. And students, of course, uh, are always uh, being admitted and, and graduating and uh, going on to careers elsewhere. So there's a, a flow to the student population and even the faculty population. And it's really building uh, research collections that are, are lasting and permanent. And, you know, I love hearing, as I did just recently and as I do with some frequency, of a new, a new faculty hire who chose to come to the University of Texas uh, because of the collections that are here and a recognition that the institution had the resources to support their own uh, research agenda, their own you know, intellectual life in, in significant ways. And we, we hear that with some regularity. I think it's more than just the university, though. I mean, basically... What you want when you live in a city is to have other interesting people to talk to and, and drink with and, you know, have fun with and, and come up with the great ideas with. Uh, certainly, Austin fits that, that bill. But it, it seems to me that what was going on there was, was trying to build this city and civilization in Texas. <laughs> Well, you know, I mentioned a moment ago um, in response to one of your other questions, this community of readers, and um, that is very much um, the type of community that gathers around an institution uh, like the Ransom Center. They may be a researcher or they may be a community member coming to a program or an exhibition. We have an exhibition on now marking the 100th anniversary of the publication of James Joyce's Ulysses. And we're attracting, you know, large audiences uh, coming to experience that exhibition. And so the center becomes um, something like what I think Harry Ransom envisioned when he said he wanted the institution to be a center of cultural compass. And I think we are that. And, um, you know, while we always want to attract um, broad and diverse audiences, um, there is a sense in which those who find their way here are, are seeking the same kinds of engagement and stimulation. And it's a very special community when that, when that occurs. 
I don't want to leave Texas uh, without bringing up some controversy. The history of Texas is sort of plantation-based. Slavery played a big role uh, in its foundation. So uh, there's a couple things. Uh, Do your collections reflect that? Yeah, the... um... The Ransom Center is one of a number of archives and libraries here at the University of Texas, and the deeper historical collections related to slavery in particular would be held at the Briscoe Center for American History here at at UT's campus. From the beginning, the Ransom Center has really focused more on human creativity. Yeah. And while... um, Slavery can, of course, and and the civil rights struggle can, of course, um, you know, manifest itself in these creative works in a variety of ways. Uh, we're, we we are not building uh, documentary or historical collections of that kind here at the Ransom Center. They would tend to land uh, at the Briscoe Center for American History, and we work quite closely, collaborate quite closely with the Briscoe Center. And so the university within this larger ecosystem of research libraries certainly has extraordinary resources in, in that area. So your interest would be the creative output driven by slavery then? Let's yeah, that's, that's right. Okay. Just uh, on, the, on the politics and the controversy, a couple of very controversial topics here, the voter suppression and abortion rights. Do you just ignore all of that? or And also the great division between the two parties. It's just, it's vicious. Well, I mean, as an individual, I, of course, have views on all of these um, current political topics. But as director of the Ransom Center, this, these are not political issues that there's an institutional position on. The university, you know, as a whole does exist to facilitate dialogue and debate and, um, you know, grappling with uh, the kinds of issues you're describing that have profound consequences for the health of of the country as a whole. But um, the Ransom Center you know, it's really focused on uh, creative productivity and the the preservation of of creative products of different kinds and their their use for the benefit of of all of us uh, long into the future. And I think, you know, to give that a little more of a, perhaps a political cast, ultimately what the experience of, of reading provides is an ability to imagine an inner life that's different from your own. And that's a very humanizing uh, thing. Uh, It's a very civilizing thing for a society. If there are people in positions of leadership who can imagine differences and not imagine them in the starkest terms of opponents or or, uh, adversaries but really imagine them and try and um, understand. And and that's at least the promise of what literature can offer us. And uh, that's the kind of um, reform, if you will, that um, that many of the writers whose archives are here are engaged in. 
and uh, we're we're happy to support that greater understanding, that stitching together of a common humanity um, through the collections and through the understanding of those collections. That was very nicely coined. I asked you about how you spend your time. If you, could you give me a rough idea of like how much you allocate to acquisition, a- allocate to donor relations, that kind of thing? Yeah, you know, this, um, you know, I don't punch a clock. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if, if I did, it would vary. Uh, there'd be, you know, cycles sure. of... Um, no, but generally, I'm just saying. Yeah, I'll just say generally, there's, um, you know, a large part of my job as director is um, to make sure the institution is financially strong and, you know, less than 50% of our budget um, comes from state resources, which means um, the rest of it, you know, comes from gifts and grants or past gifts and grants in the forms of endowments that have been established um, over many years. And so, um, you know, continuing to nurture and sustain the institution's financial well-being is an important part of my role as, as director. And we are in the middle of a, of a university comprehensive campaign where we will, you know, make significant strides in strengthening the financial position of the institution. But that's not, uh, going back to our discussion earlier, that's not chasing uh, revenue. It's, it's, it's seeking the support of individuals whose values align with the work that we're engaged in and giving them an opportunity to invest in this, this important work in a way that will continue to have returns uh, long, long into the future. And um, yeah, that's a, a lot of what I do. It, it seems to me that the, uh, I mean, one of the motivations of a donor would be, of course, sharing your mission and your ideals and your values. But they also want to fight against uh, and rescue themselves against oblivion too, right? <laughs> of course, yeah. This is similar to the individual who's deciding, you know, that they will place their personal papers here in the same way that that's uh, a very lasting move and a a permanent gesture. Uh, There's a way in which investment in the institution's work also is permanent and pays dividends um, far, far into the future. And it's, and it's an extraordinarily generous thing to, to make an investment of that kind for the benefit of students and researchers that one will never see and never know. Uh, but they can be confident that this work will continue. And uh, the Ransom Center you know, is a strong institution financially and in many other ways. And um, we're not asking our supporters to uh, put their money into a speculative <laughs> venture of any kind. Um, the outcome is, is, is certain to be successful. So how do you find these people? Well, often they find us and, you know, we certainly, you know, have a very fine development staff, both here at the Ransom Center, but also at the university 
We have a very strong membership program where people who want to advance the center's work can choose to do so through that membership program. So there's a way in which institutionally we um, are always, I suppose, um, you know, looking for potential sources of support, but often it's people finding us. And um, the Ransom Center's reputation is such that in the same way that a writer when he or she is trying to decide where their papers may go, may think first of the Ransom Center. Yeah. There are individuals in the community, within that community of readers I'm describing, that may recall the Ransom Center's very distinguished history, its very active program of, of public engagement and research support and undergraduate instruction, and, and, and want to be a part of that. And that's, that's the ideal situation is where an individual's ambitions align with our institutional ambitions and we can we can do great things together. We talked about raising money, but of course there's also the spending of money and, and acquisitions. I, I, uh, I was recently at uh, Penn University and uh, I, I know that they acquired the Gotham Bookmarks uh, archive not that long ago. And I know that you passed up on it some years ago. I just wonder why you would pass up on it and not go for it. Yeah, you know, I'd have to look into the history of that particular acquisition. We do have a sizable Gotham uh, Bookmark uh, collection here that came many, many years ago. Um, perhaps in the 70s, I'm guessing now. Um, I don't know offhand the circumstances of the recent uh, materials that went to Penn. Uh, From my point of view, it's always desirable when, um, you know, an archive is kept together. Yes. Certainly the Ransom Center did not pass on the Gotham material during my tenure here, but I understand that occurred sometime before that. So again, in terms of uh, criteria, I I, uh, I pulled out Sidney Berger's book text on uh, rare books and special collections, mm-hmm. and and he I, he uh, references the fact that there are, there's sort of a ranking of the materials that you have or that a a special collections library would have uh, in in terms of determining if you should acquire something. You must have something like that, some sort of of policy or guideline to help you decide whether or not you're going to acquire something. Yeah, we... um... I've been at the Ransom Center almost nine years now. And when I arrived, one of the first uh, things that we undertook, in addition to a strategic plan, was also development of a a collection development policy. Um, We have five uh, curators here at the Ransom Center who each have independent funding funding to uh, develop collections in their areas. But, you know, I, too, as as you know from our conversation, am also involved in certainly the decisions around uh, major acquisitions, that is, large, large expenditures. So we have a, a collection development policy that I'm quite proud of. It tries to articulate, you know, what we're looking for in each of the areas that we collect. 
And this is not a document that's, um, you know, hidden away or lost in someone's file cabinet. This is publicly facing on our website. And I wish um, more people, you know, who were thinking about where to put their materials would would take the time and, and read read that document and see if it's the kind of thing that might fit at the Ransom Center. We do express it to the best of our ability in that public-facing collection development policy. Yeah, that way you get around also, and, and this, it's this, with this burger text, the thing that jumped out at me about it was that the first thing that he had in the running a rare book department chapter, and he had a lot on it, it had to do with ethical conduct. Mm-hmm. And guidelines. like that was the first thing that was in there. And it was substantial. And maybe you could talk to that. Sure. Um, you know, it's very important, uh, you know, in my role, in terms of making sure the institution is stronger going forward in a sustainable way. Yes, there's a financial aspect of that, as we were discussing a moment ago, but equally important is that the ethical aspect of the institution and is it strong in those, in those ways. Um, There are around any of our um, countries, museums or often research libraries, collectors and others with financial interests that may from time to time um, behave inappropriately in a variety of different ways. And some of our cultural institutions, as we read about in the papers from time to time, uh, get caught up in ethical uh, dilemmas of of different kinds. Could you give an example of that? Well, um, let me see. One, I suppose, would be going back to what we discussed earlier in this conversation. I think it's uh, an ethical conflict to um, intentionally break a collection um, and split it among institutions when a collection has been established at, at one institution and another institution may decide at a very late date that they will simply through large sums of of money tempt a figure to to move a collection to another institution or to take the additions at least and place them at another institution. To poach it. Poach it, yeah, poaching it. And uh, I think once uh, an author, for example, has established an archive at an institution, that should generally be respected. Yeah, um, that archive exists in that place, and that institution has a responsibility, I think, to continue to grow that collection when there has the opportunity to do so, and it should be able to do it free of of uh, unethical competition from um, someone arriving on the scene late. And so there there are cases of that kind. More commonly, I, I suppose, the fact that donated material you know, can qualify a donor for charitable deductions for their gift, while appropriately done is perfectly, perfectly understandable. And it's great that our our tax code allows for gifts to cultural institutions to um, uh, provide some credit to incentivize the, the 
the donation of culturally significant material. But there is a potential there for that process to be abused. And um, museum directors around the country are familiar with that. Research library directors around the country are familiar with that. And I uh, view it as my role to be uh, a safeguard against that kind of abuse. Berger says he, the, the librarians shouldn't, shouldn't even take a free lunch from booksellers. <laughs> Yeah, you know, the professional association, RBMS um, and SAA, they're codes of conduct. And, you know, one does need to be careful about conflicts of interest. You know, one doesn't want to um, be the beneficiary of gifts of any kind. And I should add, there's state state requirements here in Texas along this line as well that, that might influence one's professional decision-making. And so, yes, preserving those, those boundaries is important. Just winding down here, Stephen. Yeah, he sort of contradicts himself a bit because then he says librarians should get to know specialty dealers. So, you know. You, you... Yeah. Yeah, you know, there is a, a close camaraderie that exists between dealers and librarians and archivists. And um, we're all engaged in similar work, but what one needs to be watchful of is, um, you know, a a gift that perhaps is more than the cup of coffee, but um, or the uh, the beer following a book fair, but um, is a, a gift a more consequential gift that's in, intended to affect someone's decision making and the performance of their duties. Um, one does need to maintain boundaries of that kind. You mentioned the fact that Harry Ransom is really concerned and interested in uh, sort of documenting and understanding the creative process. Why is the creative process so important? (laughs) Well, um, you know, what we're talking about, if we're doing our job right, we're talking about works, creative works of, of lasting and enduring interest. And, um, you know, we are part of a higher education uh, community where the study of core text, uh, canonical text, is a, you know, an intellectual enterprise that's valued by the academy. And it is the way that students and scholars, you know, make original contribution um, to the common base of knowledge. So these are kind of bred into the very academic enterprise. Um, and um, yeah, yeah, so we, we serve really to advance um, this study and, and greater insight into creative process. Um, you know, looking at the decisions that a writer makes um, what they chose not to include, a strike through can be as revealing or more revealing at times than what they chose to include. And so um, for a student or a researcher to be able to see that on the page and know the choice that was made, it takes the individual right back to that moment of creativity, the struggle that's inherent in creating anything and it's very privileged access to um, that labor, that form of labor. 
and it's um, it's it's um, an insight and a knowledge that the academy as a whole uh, values uh, within this higher education community. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you think might be of interest to the, re- the listeners? <laughs> oh, you've, we've covered some ground, Nigel. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I just wanted to, in closing, um, I just wanted to reference this lovely little book that, uh, and again, it's talking as a bibliophile, a book lover. Mm-hmm. Nothing better than going into a used bookstore and coming across something that sort of connects with something, something that you're interested in or something you've been thinking about. And I'd been thinking about you and uh, I was in the strand a couple of weeks ago and I came across this sweet, sweet little, basically it's an exhibition catalog uh, that you put together in 2005. And so it kind of, rescued it didn't rescue you from oblivion but it sure made me think about you and i just wonder if you could just talk very briefly about that little project yeah no thank you nigel for asking about about that uh that was a wonderful project to be involved in and i have to quickly add uh that was co-authored co-curated by me and karen kukiel from smith college And essentially, the idea for that Grow Your Club exhibition was to bring together uh, two archives uh, that have been separated by the circumstances of time and history. And in this case, this was the archive of Ted Hughes, the poet laureate of the UK, and uh, Sylvia Plath, uh, one of the most gifted American poets of her generation. They were, of course, married for uh, a number of years, and um, their, their personal story Uh, Their tragic personal story is well known to to readers everywhere. They've often been viewed apart as separate figures, um, and sometimes they've been viewed as, you know, in an adversarial relationship. And I think what Karen and I were trying to do was show that for many years of that relationship, there was a a very close uh, working collaboration and an intimate collaboration between these two very gifted poets. And while while that marriage, as we know, ended tragically uh, with Platt's suicide, for many years, it was a, a very fertile and creative relationship. And it was a delight to be able to, sh- to show um, some of the ways these two poets um, really enabled one another's work uh, during years of happiness. Do you think those two collections should be together? Um, you know, it's it's not for me to answer that question. I mean, Ted Hughes became executor of the Sylvia Plath estate, and he did uh, sell those papers to Smith College, I think, in the 1970s. You know, that was an, a perfectly appropriate decision. Um, Plath um, had attended Smith. It had been a very meaningful uh, experience, her association with Smith. And Smith has served that collection very, very well and continues to do so. Uh, The Ted Hughes papers took a different path, and ultimately uh, the bulk of them came to Emory University. They're they're both being cared for, and it, it really falls to readers now to bring them into dialogue with one another, and that's what Karen and I were doing on this exhibition 
and researchers can you know make those connections between archives um, that are geographically apart. Yes, I suppose it'd be nice if they were together, but it's not necessary that these two be together. They can certainly be joined uh, through the work of, of researchers and curators and others. Well, thanks for doing the book and the, and the exhibition and the catalog. And, and thank you very much for this dialogue, Stephen. It's been a great pleasure. I really appreciate it. Nigel, pleasure. Thank you for your interest and um, happy, to, happy to participate. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. All the best. Yes, likewise.